the Wise. We are an explicit podcast tackling content with adult themes as well as entering spoiler territory if you aren't caught up with us. This week, that would be through chapter 69 of Pierce Brown's Lightbringer. Hey there, this is Cross. And hey there, this is PJ, imitated Cross and sick voice. <laughs> we are Words and Whiskey, a podcast for veteran and novice readers alike. We tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking. You should think of us as your intoxicating weekly book club. I'm sorry to throw shit at you. You're feeling a lot better, as you've told me, but until that... you, you I sounded, sound like shit. <laughs> you sounded fine for the most part until that intro, and I'm like, he sounds pretty nasally. I'm going to make fun of him for it. So Yeah. <laughs> I... Totally fair, totally justified. I do feel better, which is ultimately why we took a week off. But I'm nowhere near 100%. This is more of a, God damn it! I don't want us to get so far off track and miss two weeks in a row. That would be insane because our fall has already been littered with a lot of schedule adjustments. So um, we want to try to, we're going to round that out this weekend. We're going to finally get in front of it again a little bit. So mm mm-hmm. But as mentioned at the very top of this episode, today is our 10th episode. We're going to be talking about chapter 62 through 69 of Pierce Brown's Lightbringer, our penultimate part of part three Tempest. Awesome. So before we get too far here, PJ, I would love to hear about what you're drinking tonight. Well, I had I celebrated Thanksgiving this weekend with my in-laws. And I made the turkey because my company gives reimbursement for turkey. So I bought still and ridiculous. prepared the turkey, which I it still turned out really good, but I totally forgot to rub that thing down with oil before roasting it. So could have been mm. crispier, could have been better. But it was still it still turned out really flavorful and delicious. But in that, they all really like Mai Tais. So I made all the stuff and brought it to wisconsin to make my ties including orgeau so i'm like all right what can i do to make or to use up this orgeau and trinidad sour i hadn't realized used orgeau as the sweetening so trinidad sour is one and a half ounces of angostura bitters you heard me correctly i know cross has talked about this before but if anybody hasn't heard that episode one and a half ounces like so good rip off that 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 shaker bottle top of the of the bitters and pour an ounce and a half of that. That is the base of this cocktail. Half an ounce of rye whiskey. I, <laughs> this is a bougie ass Trinidad sour because I used the barrel. Oh my God. For that half ounce. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. So barrel seagrass rye. Yep. And then <laughs> three quarters of an ounce of lemon juice. One ounce of Orgeau. A lot of Orgeau recipes call for blanching your own almonds, but I have found that the best, easiest home recipe you can find on Anders Ericsson's YouTube channel uh, covering syrups. I think he covers grenadine and like cinnamon simple and Orgeau and then one other, I can't remember which, in the same uh, video, but he's got the recipe right there on the description but it's it uses unsweetened unflavored almond milk 
instead of just hmm. blanching your own almonds. So it's almond milk, it's sugar, and then it's almond extract, rose water, and orange blossom water. So for the record, I use Anders Ericsson's recipe for Rojo 100% of the time. Yeah. I never go through the nut milk process because yeah. it's the best way to do it. It's I'm sure you could make a more true-to-form Orjo by blanching your own almonds, but this is perfectly fine. It's it's delicious, it's good, mm-hmm. and it's done in 10 Tastes minutes. Tastes right. <laughs> yeah, right, versus like a day process. Yeah, so. exactly. So, yeah, an ounce of Orjo, and that's all shaken. It calls for a lemon twist. I didn't have a lemon. I just had bottled lemon juice, so it's not quite as fresh as I want it to be. And I don't have the twist, but all the same, delicious Trinidad sour. Love a good Trinidad sour, man. Mm-hmm. I'm glad that you're you're enjoying that. And then my um, back half beer, or unless you have commentary on that. No, I love, dude. Trinidad sour is probably like a top three standard cocktail to some degree for me. I love that profile so much. I'm with, I'm totally with Greg from HTD. Angostura is like a godsend once you understand like what it is and how to use it properly. Mm -hmm. Like it revolutionizes and can be, I mean, it's it's like ketchup. It makes everything. I mean, or like barbecue sauce. It makes everything taste good. Yeah. It it kind of goes through that same process as absinthe does where Mm -hmm. there's a total falling off point where like it gets more intense, the more dashes of it you use. And then at a certain point, it really there's such diminishing returns that it really doesn't add more intense flavor, but allowing it to dominate the flavor profile lets you kind of feel and taste those uh, nuances that you don't get just from having a dash of it. So Mm -hmm. happy, happy, happy with that. But back half beer is a beer that you and I, I know for a fact had way too much of recently because it is the beer that i had on tap at my wedding cloud snacks from rocky reef nice nice we still had a, a can of it at my in-laws house so i took it over from when you and i were drinking it yep probably yep i think so cool so nice left over from that but yeah we killed that keg with the 50-ish people that were at the wedding so. Yeah, the IPA keg, not the Belgian keg, right? Right. They didn't have the Belgian in cans. That Belgian is so good. That's no. I just mean at the wedding. At the wedding, yeah. We didn't kill the we didn't kill the Belgian keg. Correct. But, man, but some of us tried. If it was a six barrel like I had purchased, we would have. <laughs> but it was a quarter barrel, <laughs> so there was yeah. a decent amount left. And, but I, I paid for a six barrel. <laughs> it was it was fine. So nice. Yeah. What about you, Crossland? What are you drinking? Uh, I'm having something very straightforward. It's just like a modified gin sour. It's nothing crazy to remark upon. So gin sour, you know, you're talking your simple syrup, you're talking your lemon, you're talking your gin, egg white, you know, shaken, dry shaken, ice introduced, and then shaken, thrown in, whatever, Angostura to top the little creamy tops. But I did add a little bit of St. Germain. I added a quarter ounce of St. Germain just because I wanted to kind of level it out my and just give it like a different dimension you know i've been playing around a lot of times i'll throw in like a little bit of green chartreuse 
or like a little bit of absinthe or like some other modifying maraschino, some other like modifying liqueur. And I haven't really played a whole lot with St. Germain. So I wanted to just kind of adventure down a little bit, taste it a little bit more and then get an idea for like foundational cocktails going forward. So from a few different sources, and I can't remember where off the top of my head, but between like YouTube channels and articles and just people that I know in the industry or bartenders that I've talked to. I've heard from many different places people referring to St. Germain as bartenders ketchup as just kind mm-hmm. of, or like mixologists ketchup is just kind of a, an unobtrusive, sweet floral thing that you can add to most cocktails and it won't fuck up the flavor profile but it will really round out something that's missing something so good on you yeah i need to pick and up I've, another bottle I've heard, of it. I've heard similar things you know often exchanged with maraschino it's pretty pretty mm-hmm. similar it's not the same profile it's a different profile but it is generally used for the same kind of light sweetness rounding not nearly as sweet as saint germain right like, so I did, knowing that I was putting St. Germain in, and I did tone down the sugar a little bit, but that's that's about it. To follow that, I am having a beer from Thirsty Dog Brewing Co. called Cerebris. Cerebris here, our three-headed dog, is a Belgian triple IPA, or Belgian triple. Dude. Not IPA. Fucking love Belgian triples. Yeah, man. I haven't had it. I'm going to take a sip. <sighs> Fuck yeah. Fuck yeah, dude. <laughs> Hot or yeah, cold that's, fermented. That's can you tell? Uh, great question. It well, it, it won't details. say, but you you'll you might tell. Like if it's more peppery and more like spicy, or if it's more like fruity and like maybe some banana comes through. Banana. Okay, so it's a warmer fermented one. Yeah, yeah. I I, uh, I very love Belgian yeast because it's so diverse and you can do so much with it, and all of it's good. <laughs> it's just so different. Yeah. It it isn't actually banana, of course, but it is more fruity. It's in that sort of yeah. flavor realm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So the reason why that happens is because the Belgian yeast, when it's fermented at a warmer temperature, it releases more esters, and those esters produce fruity flavors. One of the common ones is banana, uh, which you also get off of like German Hefeweizen yeast. That's where that characteristic banana flavor comes from in that beer style. But Belgians, I tend to prefer like Le Fin du Monde, if you ever, that, that's a very widely available one. That one seems to be more cold form- fermented. So you get like really peppery, spicy notes off of the yeast profile. If you're a member of our Patreon, or if you're looking at joining, we did a little Oktoberfest episode where we talked through a lot of commonly available beers. And that was one of them that we both drank and talked through and gave notes on. Mm-hmm. I just realized... I, I made a conscious decision to talk more about beer nerd stuff because I felt like mm-hmm. I've been skimping on it a little bit. And oh, no, all good. Yeah. I, I wasn't trying to cut you off either. I was no, just no, saying, no, you know, as a good. point of reference, there's a ton of detail in mm-hmm. that episode, too, that does a really good job kind of highlighting it. And we actively tried Le Fin du Monde and got to talk about some of those differences. So it is Did we on that very one? cool. Yeah. Okay. That was I don't remember one of that. the Belgians that we compared. We we did two different. Oh, we, we did, totally we did. did. We did an Oktoberfest one. Yeah. We did a Belgian one. Okay. Yeah, I don't remember doing the Belgian one. <laughs> well, no, we in in the Oktoberfest episode we covered six beers. Okay, they were not all Oktoberfest beers. Oh. One was like a commonly available IPA. I think we did. Um, oh, Bell's you're Party. right. You know what I mean? I we just did it that. for Oktoberfest quote. I think there yeah, was also was not- an episode where we did 
like six different commonly available Oktoberfests. But maybe that was just you and I getting PJ, drunk PJ, I think that. That, is, that is pre-podcast, and that was when we were dreaming up ideas to do, <laughs> like that one day where we bought the Stone IPA. And by the way, these ideas or, date back to like 2016. Or that one day uh, where we bought 12 different kinds of cheeses and made grilled cheese out of them. We we've done a lot of dumb shit. I mean, collectively over the years. So yeah, uh, that yeah. that also okay. happened. Okay, yeah. So fair enough. Well, should but we? Yeah, that should was we that was a fun day. Talk about. Uh, I would love to talk about your feelings about this week. Yeah, how do you how did you feel about this uh, this I week's felt reading? It's very, been a bit. You had two weeks with it. Uh, yeah, so. I did have two weeks with it. So I mentioned how it might be kind of mean if you just left me here to not get any more information on Darrow after last week. And that was mm-hmm. untrue, but just barely. <laughs> just barely. It was practically true. When you mentioned that, I was like, oh, damn it. There's just that one chapter. But it was a good, it's a good cliffhanger. It was a good cliffhanger. And, you know, it was, this, yeah. The chapter that you that we came back to easily could have been at the end of this section or later. Ah, no, not really because of Lyria's interaction with with uh, Severo and yeah, Darrow after right. that. So never mind. But the bulk of that information, like she could have had, I don't know, there could have been a way to get that chapter and all that information much later in the story. And leave that on a cliffhanger while still allowing Lyria to go interact, maybe like at the foot of the cell, talking like with like hanging out with Severo outside the cell mm-hmm. and then talking to Darrow at the bars or something like that. Like that could have easily just as well have happened. But I felt this week that uh, we would have gone. Yeah. Upset. Upset a lot. <laughs> I was upset a lot mm-hmm. about this week, I think. Yeah. There's a lot to be upset about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not a not a happy set of sex or a set of chapters. There's not many of those though, so I should get used to it. <laughs> I do. I do really like this week's focus in, and the reason that I did cut it this way is because I really like this week's focus on Lyria in this section because it does feel like we are predominantly with Lyria. Um, and really give her like the time to shine in the spotlight. Mm-hmm. That's part of the reason that I cut it this way as well when considering the chunks and sections. Because there was a part of me that was like, yeah, absolutely. And on 62, we would have structured like another episode earlier and divided up part three into one extra episode. But in the end, and even in anticipation of this, I debated at the last second, not the last second, like this week, last second, last week when we were maybe going to record it. I was like, ooh, do I include 70? Should we actually do that? It's only five minutes. We could read that. And then I went and read it and I was like, absolutely not. No, nope, <laughs> we ended in the right spot. I'm so glad we did. Good work past me. So I'm I'm glad you brought that up. Not like I haven't read 70 yet, but I did read accidentally the like I didn't try to, but I read the the title of it. The title. Yeah. Hard to avoid. Hard Hard to avoid. Hard to avoid that. Passage of Stains. But yeah. I saw HowlerPod posted their reread schedule. And mm-hmm. it deviates just so very slightly in our breakdown, which I know you talked to Ben um, quite a bit before we actually started this and consulted him in breaking this down. But I think it makes sense from a community reread standpoint to continue that perspective and get 70 as opposed to leaving off on a cliffhanger like this. But with you and I, 
it makes a lot of sense to just leave off on cliffhangers. This is me talking without actually knowing what happens in 70 to be fair, but yeah. like I, I like I recognize that there is a difference. It's, it's in, like a great meta thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there there's a difference yeah. in the philosophy of how you break something down when you're talking to a singular person and creating a narrative extended story for them, which is effectively what you're doing for me. Creating your episodic adventure, exactly. which is very different than the way that someone might create an episodic adventure when someone already understands the story, right? right? Which is what they're doing yeah as my my end points are for you so mm-hmm. and theirs are for everyone else who kind of knows those things and i do agree with his call both in their first episode to only go until i think five and i think we went until six because the first section was the one that we i think went back and forth the most on debating yeah we went to oh no sorry that was in morning star hang on two seconds <laughs> one to six yeah is what we read through and he he was like, I firmly believe five. And I'm like, I think I need six to like break this up properly to give you kind of like the leverage and split it well into two episodes that are similar length as well. There are a couple of points and especially near the end, I think they're doing like the final part in two episodes and we're doing it in three. So mm-hmm. just this additional comparison points. So very excited for their season, of course. And if you haven't listened to them, make sure you go do. There are little Atomic Pylon buddies and they're the best. They're good friends um, of ours. And I'm only saying that because otherwise Aaron will probably do something horrible to me. And who knows? We might show up. Hmm. <laughs> I won't. Uh, I won't go that's a tease. near those people and again. <laughs> <laughs> All right. With that, let's get into our chapters here with that. We're going to start with chapter 62, Darrow, the Tyrant's Debris. I fucking love all of the chapter titles, by the way, for this week, for this entire fucking book. They're all so good. They're so strong. Really love it. Is is um, chapter title? Sorry. Like, I know I know, we're kind yeah. of on a time crunch here, so I apologize, but it's not that bad. Is chapter titles something that has kind of fallen out of favor and is maybe like coming back into favor in the meta of like story writing in general i think it really depends on the individual right okay like so king stephen king will use in some books he'll use chapter titles as like big breaks so they're almost more like parts or like acts but they're not like a part in the same way that pierce brown's parts are parts right so it's like one of our episodes in the dark tower will be chapter one god what's it called path of the guns like chapter chapter four way station and that w- that it will be 80 pages but there are micro breaks inside of there where he has like just break points that are basically like chapters within the chapter christopher rocchio uses a similar style to pierce brown here where he has chapter titles of course i really feel like of, of all the people we've read recently it's strange but branderson doesn't have Brandon sanderson just doesn't use titles yeah which is not it's not wrong it's just different and like when we go to the first law of which we also announced this week all of those are titled and not numbered so like that's that's a whole thing as well so that's going to be a fun a fun component for us to deal with that's going to be read along annoying i'm gonna go go uh, i'm gonna go ahead and number those (laughs) I think. <laughs> yeah. No, we're we're going to go ahead and try to figure out something to like create a, a system within our page own, numbers like, is probably to... the best way to do it because you and I have. Be, yes. S- strictly because you and I have the same working books books. Mm-hmm. Like I know you have some collector's editions, but yeah, 
Yeah. I'm not going to use those to parse out the pieces and like put sticky notes in them specifically. Yeah. yeah. I may go to go physically read them, but I'm not going to use that to sticky note it. And yeah, we also have places for page total, page count, and we will just do we'll just do page to page breakdowns uh, with those additions. I think we should and make also, people and we'll count also the number title, of words. Title. We'll just do word number to word number, and that's how we'll delineate. <laughs> there also this isn't necessarily a spoiler, but one of the things about the first law, and then I swear to God we'll get back to Pierce Brown's Red Rising, is. Abercrombie repeats chapter titles sometimes. Oh, what the to fuck? To be reminiscent of themes of things that came before. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> the page number is particularly important. Within the same book? Just sometimes. Not often. Occasionally. Actually, fuck you, Joe. I think in no. every single book. <laughs> fuck you. At least once in each book. If not, twice. It's probably fine if you're just reading the book. There's like, I get there's it. There's definitely a reason. Yeah. But think mm-hmm. about the podcasters, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Back to Pierce. <laughs> we start off this chapter with Athena's story and how she came to the rebellion. Her origin story here is absolutely brutal, but she's followed quickly by Ares's entrance into the room as Severo has donned the Twilight Helm once again. We then learn that it was him that brought out the heroes into this room with their heads still on their shoulders. That it's his his eloquence, which is so strange to say in combination <laughs> with Severo's name, that led to this moment. It is kind of funny. Um, the story that Athena tells is haunting. And uh, while the story itself is unique, the idea of a haunting backstory for any of these characters is not unique. Um, <laughs> but True. still, it's heavy shit and I loved it. I loved the 11 marks that she makes in front of Cassius with the razor. The whole thing was theatrical and just heavy in the best way possible. I still don't quite have, like, maybe it's me. Maybe it's my weird imagination thing. But the characters seem to be in much more awe of the twilight helm than i was able to be i didn't quite get was what was actually happening like it sucked the darkness out is is kind of or it sucked the light out of the area is kind of the the best way i could figure how it was described like it shrouded the area in darkness which makes sense from the from the term twilight helm but um, yeah, so so more or less, it it looks almost ethereal is the way that I would describe it. So it seems almost otherworldly as far as it's represented, right? So when it peels back, unlike sort of the way that you you might imagine, you know, this is a, a a weird way of explaining this, but in the way that like a garage door rolls up and its folds kind of lift in, right, mm-hmm. and up and over, it's almost like he just emerges from smoke. Is is my understanding of that portion of the helm? Right. Okay. In addition, this is a different helm than has ever been donned before, but it is representative of. Yeah. At all. Okay. Now, the darkness power is another question entirely that I would love to answer here, but my fucking Kindle isn't working. Thank you, Amazon, for all you do for me. Yep. Good boy, Amazon. It will not load anything except for chapter 67. It likes 67. (laughs) It likes Volga, as it turns out. Who doesn't? Good old snowball. All right. It's good, fine. Good question. We're going to get there. But <laughs> yeah, the, the helm is is very unique. It's incredible. And like Ares becoming and being Ares is is fantastic. Ares is back, baby. You know what I mean? Hey. 
And he doesn't let all of the other speeches that we talked about last week sit on their laurels. Severo outdoes himself, inspiring his friends here. And there are just so many, like, again, we talked last week about this a lot. um, But, like, one of the big components here that I really appreciate is the is sort of the difference that we feel in the speeches and the way that Severo actually feels like he's really changed and understood his place and what he needs to do now from the beginning of this book where he felt isolated and like totally out of it. And now he's been like basically shaken awake into understanding his place in all of this. Yeah. The, to, to start it off here, one of the, I've got a couple of different quotes that are a couple of different components that come out in the speech that are just excellent. And Severo has another speech later that I think is almost even better. We don't need to get into that immediately. We'll talk about that when we get there, but it's easy to make Da shiny in death, but we forget Da was a mess of a man, more broken than any of us. That's why he chose Athena here, why he chose Dancer, Harmony, and Dara. He took the broken people because he knew he could reforge them stronger. Oh, man. Like, I, I, I know we mentioned and went on a tirade about it last week, but if you haven't read Sons of Ares 3, or if you haven't read any of the Sons of Ares, this hits so much harder knowing what happens within that series and like having the context for what he's actually talking about. Cause you get, it just makes Fitchner such a better character. It does. Well, it, it not that it makes him a better character. It makes you understand Fitchner more. It, sure. Yeah. You, it, it doesn't change how I feel about Fitchner. It's just that I have context to hmm. care even deeper okay. about Fitchner. I think enhances. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But in, in a way that I would almost classify as required for this section to, to make this speech hit as hard as it does. I feel like that's important. I totally get that. And it's, it's necessary. And I think it builds context, which again is why I said that we had to make sure that we read it before this, because it does feel like there are parts of this that were written around or in conjunction with or with the idea of people having the context of Sons of Aries to truly deepen that understanding with Fitchner. We still need to Especially figure out when to record on that. First time in a long time. Yeah, no, I, I talked about that recently, so we'll figure that out. But <clears throat> there's also a component here that happens where Severo calls Darrow boss for the first time since IG, and that got me all weepy hmm. for this first time since Iron Gold. And I... Again, we're talking coffee shop notes. I definitely got a little weepy at this point in the really? coffee shop. Kind oh, of yeah. surprises yeah, me. Yeah, man. I found in my, I don't want to say old age, but in my like age, there are like certain things that push me emotionally that I don't expect to necessarily. A lot of them are like groups of people coming together for whatever reason. Or like people realizing that they like need each other in some fundamental way. And and that sort of turn like means something deeply to me, even in like shitty action movies. For instance, like when we watch Dungeons and Dragons, I tear up when when the the like tiefling turns around and finally like becomes one with the rest of the party, the druid, and like that sort of turn or or like there there are just so many different moments in that movie that like push me emotionally more. And this was one of them. This mirrors those same sort of emotional highs. Okay. So, Awesome. I took that down as a coffee shop note, though. So perfect. Coffee shop. Yeah. You were coming through. Coffee shop note. Yeah. Yeah. Again, what's fun is, is that we're reading this over the course of many weeks, and I read this over the course of many hours. <laughs> <laughs> so 
Just an excellent little callback. Severo continues his speech, though, and says, Da was one person, one pissed off human being whose only power was realizing he could unlock the tide. He gave us permission to fight our way out of the cell they made us. It's pretty powerful. It's, yeah. it, it is. The words of rebellion. Feels good to hear Severo announce them so strongly. But mm-hmm. the speech in general, I think, I'm pretty sure, disproves our sort of dread pirate Roberts theory for Athena. Yeah, because Severo points out specifically that Athena was chosen by Fishner and was a broken person. So there goes. Yeah, the, I'm not. If you haven't read it, that the who we know, who we assume to be Athena. Well, we threw that away anyway. We did well, throw it yeah. away. I, I, under, yeah. I understand what you're saying. Yes, yes, yes. I yep. still, I, I still idea. felt like yeah. there was something like, oh, it's a Dread Pirate Roberts. It's a passing of the well, torch. Well, the mask could have been put down and then, you know. That's true. Uh, he he picked it up. Or she picked it up, rather. and Or he picked it up for her, right? Yeah. So but there's still something going on there that I'm, like that I'm curious about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wouldn't say it completely. It invalidates the idea of it being something that is just inherited, but it might have become inherited as a part of him needing a placeholder for Rihanna, as we yeah. mentioned previously. Or, or Fitchner tapped her, tapped Athena, as we know her, to mm-hmm. to be someone important, and Rihanna gave the blessing of Athena to her, or something like that. I don't know. There are a lot of ways that could, could have be. gone down. There are a lot of questions. But in this moment, we come to realize that everything is going to change and everyone aligns on a plan in this moment. The plan that Athena agrees with is to break Thaw however they can. Obviously, Darrow issued the challenge of Ashvar, of which we didn't mention. I didn't mention Ashvar strictly on last week's episode. I feel really dumb hmm. for not mentioning the fact that like that came through. Um as far as one of the points that we talked about, we kind of talked vaguely about the idea, but we never tackled it directly. But that, and the fact that that will be impossible to ignore because it is literally a challenging of one's honor. And as such, we know that it's a very honorific society and that they have to, you know, deal with that. So impossible to ignore. Yes. Not impossible to fluke. Fairly easy to fluke. But what that hmm. would do Assuming assuming that they're able to just kind of shuffle Wagner, 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 Wagner. I can't remember the, the right pronunciation. Wagner, Wagner, um, shuffle Wagner out of out of harm's way onto his own little planet. Do what he wants to do. Retire. Life of luxury. Zoo. All that. His granddaughter, happy life, wealthy man, all this behind him. Uh, some Trump dead. The problem is who gets to kill that chump? Lysander has a lot to gain for being that guy that kills that chump. Does. And Darrow he does. has a lot to lose for not actually killing Fa. <laughs> Ooh, do you kind of have an idea about where we're going to go? I have no idea where we're going to go. But I know we're going to go to a point where there's going to be strategic decision making. And I think 
for the sake of maintaining the obsidian like war structure, Atlas is going to allow Darrow to kill Tha and and go through with the Ashvar. As and and snub Lysander's kind of rise to power in the process. Because the idea of in another obsidian revolt when they're already so organized is probably pretty dire. So I think there will be a strategic political plan to shift their plan as opposed to allowing like the, the plan effectively stays the same. Ba has mm-hmm. somebody a stand in die in his place and retires and the world goes on. But Lysander doesn't get to be the one to kill him. Oh man, but that's, that gives a lot of credibility to the Republic and to Darrow himself. Hmm. So maybe they do that. They allow Fa to rise from the dead as unholy as he is. Continue to lead the Obsidian, maybe for the three months that were initially prospected for him. And then Lysander kills him. So kind of a best of both worlds situation. Yeah, have your cake, eat it too. Whatever you want to call it. Yeah. I prefer the Miley Cyrus route. Come on. Yeah. That's fair. <laughs> who doesn't? Right. But also, right. who doesn't like cake? True. Cake or death? Well, cake, please. <laughs> cake, please. Cake, please. I didn't expect such a run on cake. <laughs> anyway, I absolutely, you should go listen to Eddie Izzard if you haven't already. Also, Dylan Moran, if we're talking about comedians, they're both excellent. They're both British and Irish. So, highly recommend. Athena agrees to do the right thing, right thing from our perspective, of course, and rescue the people of the surface. She also throws Darrow pyros. Well, I mean, <laughs> I, I guess like do the right. Right is so you know we have to we have to think about what right the really good means thing. or is. Do yes, the do objectively the and truthfully good thing, the morally sound thing, and ultimately, you know, decides that she is willing to rescue and risk. Life and limb to rescue the people on the surface. Uh, she also gives Darrow Pyrophoros, of which we've talked about previously, of course, is this giant black hosta, which is the rim weapon, which is so fucking cool that Darrow's using a rim razor for some fucking reason. It's so neat. Just a different change of pace for him. But for the purpose that it was intended and relays that more than anything else, this is a delay of judgment for him, not necessarily a clean pass or mm-hmm. a clean slate. So I've got a couple of comments. One mm-hmm. Im- immediately, so he mm-hmm. he toggles. He uses the toggle to like make the crescent, make the sling blade. There's a lot of crescents in this. <laughs> there's loon, yeah. There's the obsidian, and there's Darrow. What are you gonna do? But do you think Fair this point. is? So, <laughs> I guess this depends on how the whole thing works. There's the handle, and then I imagine there's like a a straight part of the blade and then a curve to make it look like a sickle as opposed to being like handle and then immediately starts curving. So do you, do you agree with that? Like there, there's like straight generally and then, then the curve yep. after a little bit straight section. So do yep. you think that this hosta it's proportional? So it, like the curve is bigger and the, the, the thing is bigger. Do you think the curve is the same size and there's just a really long sort of stick between the handle and the curve, but it's the same size curve at the end? 
I think he'd extend to to your point. I think he'd extend like the handle distance and then the same sort of curve and same you know, size curve. Or do you think just, on the handle? just kind of a little <clears throat> bit bigger curve because it's a bigger blade? I don't think it's a little bit of a bigger curve. I think that he would maintain the same size because he kind of understands that and just adjusts the rest of the distance and where he's striking things. Okay. You know, sounds good. It's, it's more like a reach change than anything else. Yeah. He's going from a standard fighter to a polearm master, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, I just, that popped into yeah. my head and I yeah. wanted fun, to fun see, commentary, what you, though. see what you thought. Where, what do you think? Which, I think which he'd one make think? it a little bit more proportional. He'd have a little okay. bit longer, but he'd also have a larger crescent. Yeah, I don't, part of part of the reason that I don't feel like it has, it should get too much larger is because it might become like almost unwieldy. Well, it doesn't have to be deeper. Things it, like that. It doesn't have to be the same. Fair. Like it Actually, could, it could just good, be good like point, a, a shallower, but longer which Hook. also, fun fact, is actually the design of the the sling blade itself, as described as a historical military weapon, is not a scythe, which is the way that it's commonly thought of and depicted in a lot of the, the visuals that we get inside of the series. The sling blade is actually much more of a shallow, gradual blade that is meant to be like just a... It, it's more of a cousin of a scimitar than it is a scythe. Okay. Cool. If that makes sense. So... To your or point, sim- that actually like reinforces that. A scythe that. is a pretty gradual curve, too, but a sickle is like a, a really Sorry, yes, aggressive. sickle. Yeah, the sickle is the... the yeah. Yes. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Whereas the scythe I is like the... I did not scythe. Yep. Just kind of right angle yep. off the top thing. Right. Anyway, yep. going back to the actual commentary on the story, I yeah. am anxious to see how all of this plays out with the daughters. Mostly because Athena presented this as a consensus because it is like this is a true democracy as far as we can tell. But that very well could mean that 49% of the, of the constituency were unhappy with this decision and want to see Darrow hang or be not resolved be, for sure. Ca- like decapitated. He wasn't going to swing. But I, I think this will make for some very tense scenes later and th- there's also the fact that it seems like the people that voted upon this were the first daughters the people that were mm-hmm. in that room and everyone else I, I i don't know that for sure but that's how it was described with the people that were in that room that where he presented his argument where he gave that speech uh were described as the it first seemed daughters. like i just I want to clarify. First daughters, I think, are the ones that are up front, that like conclave, that are right there. Um, they're the close ones that are behind masks. I think that the other ones are also considered maybe first daughters, but are people that were specifically wronged in the in the docks of Ganymede uh, incident. I thought that so was the definition kind of, of the first levied. daughters. Was anybody wronged and that joined? Because it, it might of that? be that. That might that might be like used in conjunction, but just to make it clear, there's like a council of like small masked figures that are there, and then there's also like a larger group. Okay, I think the larger group, at the very least, is what you're talking about. Yeah, that's who I'm talking about. That, yeah. I, I I assumed those were the people voting, and I assumed I thought the other way, but I understand. Okay, okay. that's that's fine. But either way, yeah. there are thousands, and maybe tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of others beyond mm-hmm. the seven thousand that we were presented with that yep. weren't directly affected but were 
deeply indoctrinated into what happened and joined after what happened at the docks who might be more venomous who might be more radical and like there's a very real possibility that an overwhelming majority of the daughters of Ares are going to be against letting Darrow lead this campaign. There's another part of me, too, that also thinks that this is an opportunity for the daughters to be like, all right, we heard your speech. We believe your passion. Let's like let it sit and we'll see if you mean it. Like prove it. I I think that's the sentiment of the people that voted. But I'm curious. Mm. I'm curious if the unheard voices, of course, too. Yeah, a lot more people, and if this is truly representative of that of the daughters. Totally. We then move to Diomedes, and his sentence is very different. Cassius is basically like let off the hook, <laughs> yeah. kind of in a funny way. Um, it's just like, all right, fine, you're fine, you're good, because everyone else said that you're good. Mostly, it's Severo's responsibility for you. So you're you're good, which is cool on Severo and like Cassius's relationship. That's excellent for them. Mm-hmm. Um, but to Diomedes, his sentence is very different as he is pushed to lead a triest triest and agrees to become the ambassador for the daughters and the rights of the low colors to the moon lord and moon lords themselves. And this is this is an insane scene that happens between him and Ore and as well as Athena. Like, this is just wonderfully portrayed. It's one of my favorite moments with Diomedes in the series so far, as it shows him both as, like, truly a man of honor, truly a respectable man, a politician, not a dummy, and someone of whom, despite being a stoic, has emotion. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's probably a similar and maybe even more violent possibility that Whatever was voted upon is not a true representation of the sentiment of the daughters Ooh. in this case. This case sure. feels very much more uh, tenuous. I th- I feel like the other way. I feel like this one feels less tenuous. It's it's kind of like a do it or die, but I don't think that they're like... There seems to be a lot of... There seems to be a lot more... There's a conditionality for, for Diomedes, for sure. Yeah. And against gold in general is one thing, but against the raw, the raw house in general, like I I could, I could imagine most people in the daughters have been directly or indirectly affected on a personal level by that family. Well, and and that's what she says as well, is like, you are the oppressor, right? And yeah. she kind of goes through a lot of that inside of the dialogue, which is why I think that this is so well levied against Diomedes and saying that, like, if you would have us, you would be the best advocate for us the other way, <laughs> because you appear to be an honorable man and more than appear. You are beyond a shadow of a doubt to everyone around you, an honorable man. So prove it again. Classic. Uh- sort of marcus aurelian theory going on spitting it back in his face but for sure but given that a lot of that argument and a lot of that reasoning is made off of the the dissemination of information from ore and her time with the raw which i would assume was fairly tight-lipped like that that was fairly 
held close to the vest. Like I can't imagine most of the daughters understand Ore's assessment of Diomedes Aura. So if, if that is the crux of the reasoning for allowing this to happen, and most of them don't know that information, it's going to cause a stir. Or, or it has the potential for causing a stir. So I'm I'm curious to see how this goes. I might be completely wrong, and this might have been broadcasted to every daughter of Ares, and they all got a true democratic vote on yeah, allowing this I, to happen. That could be. I doubt it. I think it was probably this this these this council of daughters, if not that seven thousand first daughters, or however it breaks down. But I could see it being problematic. Yeah, I, I'm I'm not thinking about it so much from the perspective of the daughters' votes. I'm thinking about it more from like the moralistic high ground. And you're right, it probably is mostly an ore reading, but I think the other side of that is the end of the last section, right? Which is where Diomedes pours his heart out to Darrow and everyone else. They're obviously listening. We talk about that kind of early on, that they hmm. heard, you know, other details and stuff like that. I don't but, think we've... Yeah. I guess we have so. gotten through that. That was this chapter, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's at the very least the precursory stuff, right? Because this is our last Darrow chapter for the week. Mm-hmm. So there, there's a quote here as well that I really appreciate from Athena. We don't hold the sins of the ancestors against their descendants, Ra. Give me your oath, and I'll put the blade in your hand myself. And that is... Yep. It is so well said and so well done from her that I, I just particularly appreciate it. Yeah. That she understands him, seemingly, very well, and he seems to be true to the way that he presents himself. So... I'm happy with how this has all gone so far. Cool. All right. That rounds out the first chapter of the week. No. <laughs> with that, we get to chapter 60. I, I knew that it was going to be a long one. There's so much that's like theoretical and wonderful and lovely. But with that, we go into chapter 63, Lyria Mashed Taters. And in particular, you know, of course, we're back to the theme of the series. We're talking about food again, right in the chapter title. So you know that it's going to be a big deal. This chapter is a massive deal this is a bacon and eggs level deal here but i really appreciate this almost like little people chapter here that we get as lyria shows us the other side of a rebellious organization and of course she's on the outside truly she's a nobody here and is treated as such she still does prove that she's capable and weasels her way past a green and a yellow and makes her way into the room where it happens social where the team is chatting about next steps yeah social engineers her way right into that room like the best of us bill smith and she tells Severo that she must talk to Dara. What's on the screens? <laughs> <laughs> this is where we What's could have thing? seen the thing. Yeah. The thing mm-hmm. that they ominously point to later on. She's looking at it. She doesn't actually take a look at it. <laughs> Fuck. Mm-hmm. Right there. Very, very good. And it does beg questions. What I love about this, too, to some degree, is that it solves like a problem by core that exists inside of Morningstar, something we talked about before. There was a secret. And because we were in the perspective, the secret didn't feel earned. Now that we're outside of the perspective and we're able to view it from another perspective, it feels like there's something that's going to happen. We don't know what the fuck the thing is. And so it feels like it's building tension and creating tension for us, not knowing what's going on. Right. Unlike I can still be upset about it. 
I'm not upset, mm-hmm. but I am oh, I, entirely. I, no, I'm not. I'm not upset. But at the at very all, least, it feels I, justified. Yeah, yeah. I'm just curious. I'm sure I'll find then, out soon. But then we move to the cafeteria where Darrow is hunched over a pile of chow. This is a great moment for Lyria again, where she, we see that she's got the firmest spine of any single character in the series, unbending and always willing, standing up for the right thing. It's impossible to not love the potato bit where she pulls the tray away. And as it's going away, Darrow with his fork spears the potato and shoves it into his mouth. It's just like it's such a nice, nice mm-hmm. little moment and exchange between the two of them. These reds staring each other down, especially from opposing clans as well. Yeah, yeah, totally. She's. She's so headstrong. We know that. Like, of course, of course she is. And she she knows um, the way that she's standing up for herself is very counter to the way that Darrow expects basically everybody to interact with him. He gets away with so much, more or less from raw intimidation, just from being just from being who he is and carrying himself the way that he does, he gets a lot of leeway from all facets of life. And she's one of the few people that we've interacted with that actually stands up for herself against him, which is kind of cool to see. And she has leverage. Like she, she has leverage. She has good standing within the Republic. She has everything that she needs in order to effectively stand up against Darrow. And she uses it consciously or not. Like, I I think she would still stand up for herself if she didn't have that good standing and didn't have the leverage that she does. But she, she has exactly what she needs in order to do this. Effectively. Yeah, in particular, because she does, it just emboldens her point, right? Like, it, it makes it all that much better. I think that it also makes a strong case for her as a... We, we've talked about this a little bit previously. It makes a strong case for her that she doesn't need the Oracle to be a powerful individual in, like, a political way and, like, the way that she stands up for things. She's made She makes that very clear over the course of the chapter that she is a capable individual, Perhaps un- uh, until the very end, but you know she she does well for a lot of this, showing showing her strengths and her ability to stand up for herself. So that's true. So not to be outdone, we get our final speech of the set as Lyria sets to earn her own among our legions of orators of the last couple of chapters. She says, "You destroyed my world. It's gone and never coming back. Part of me will always hate you for that. The farther and farther I go from Mars, the more I miss it. The more I want to fight for it." Lads and lasses younger than me will be shouldering rifles against Atalantia soon, if they aren't already. Lads and lasses that lasted the assimilation camps like me. It wasn't their choice either to leave the mines you chose for us. But they ain't hiding or whining like I've done. They're fighting. This is my choice. I want to help. I slipped into an accent there. You did. Unintentionally. Unintentionally? No, entirely. Hmm. Yeah. All right. Well done. I found this speech particularly striking for a main reason, and that's the distinction that she makes between Mars and the mines. And it seems like that distinction is there because she understood and her entire like generation understood that there was something above them. There, there was civilization on top of Mars, whereas... 
Darrow. Or so, so for that reason, the mines are her home. Mars is not. Whereas Darrow mm-hmm. always believed that he was a Martian. He was toiling under Mars's surface, but didn't believe that there was anything above it. He didn't believe that he was a slave. So he maintained that Mars was his home, even as a child, even before the rising. He was making it his home. That was the whole point. Exactly. That that was the entire yeah. point. So that that creates this really strange dynamic between the two of them where they're from the same place. They should have this kinship, but he's a Martian through and through and always has been. And she sees Martians as outsiders, even though she grew up in the same mind system that he did. And maybe not yeah, outsiders, and- but oppressors almost or, or, or others, not her, not her home. I, I think in particular, it also speaks to like their sort of inequality within the system that existed, right? She felt like it was home because she was also a member of the winning clan, right? So she was always treated better wherein Darrow was fighting to survive on the outset of, of his and was trying to like make that work, right? So there's some functional things. It's it's so nice. I know that we haven't like thought or talked about it in a long time, but the first 50 pages, every book become more pertinent and relevant and better <laughs> despite not liking them initially. It's it's just such a striking thing to me in this series is that that portion of the story grows in estimation more and more and more as you move on. It does. Like my reread ahead of Lightbringer definitely had a different different tone than the first time. Totally get it. Yeah. And I, I think that this kind of harkens to that point though. And it harkens to those differences between them. Mars is the home because that's what he is fighting for. She was safe in the mines which were her home before. And so they come from different levels of shattered worlds and shattered expectations but it's important to know that either way on either side of that coin it was darrow's fault and it's his responsibility as well to repair that true it is or to allow others to which is her case so she then proposes a plan gets sigurd to bring her to volga darrow ensures that she understands the consequences of this decision and embarking upon this quest Severo is certain that Cassius will hate this more than the thing, and that means that it's time to give Truffle Pig her shot. Truffle Pig. Truffle Pig. Truffle Pig. Truffle Pig. So, (laughs) with that, chapter 64, Lysander, the Noble Lie. We head into our only Lysander chapter of the week, and he approaches having survived, in quotes, the Battle of Kalaki and proceeds to lie to the people he considered his family and his friends to perpetuate the plan that Atlas has set into motion. Does this in part on Roan's recommendation of treating them like mushrooms, and Lysander reflects on how trapped he feels by the Gorgons, Atlas, and Roan. Well, he is trapped. He is a puppet at this point. Like it or not, he can break out of he can break his his strings at some point. But right now he is a puppet. He doesn't have a choice in what he does. And what he does is perpetuate the lies that Atlas has been building for over a decade. So 
What are you going to do? Fuck you, buddy. Sorry. <laughs> but I, I do love He's that trapped. he refers to what's been done to his armor and his Praetorian's armor as doctoring. They, the Gorgons doctored his armor. And I'm, I'm pretty confident that just means he got the shit beat out of him and they, they beat the shit out of his armor in kind. So mm-hmm. I don't think he took off his armor and they like punched it a bunch of times. I think when he took his beating, he was wearing his armor and <laughs> probably got he shot a couple with, times. Like, and, fake wounds. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, that's, we know that happened. We know that was delivered mm-hmm. by Atlas's fists himself, I think. Right. But I would be willing to bet he was yeah. also wearing his armor and like went down a firing range or something. And like mm-hmm. got tackled and got shot and like they made it real. <laughs> There's I a scene wouldn't... here again of Lysander yeah. getting the shit kicked out of him. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I imagine the doctoring quote unquote was just I just I laughed at the description or that uh, terminology. I I love I, I want to like point this out. I think this is more of like a general commentary. Um, a lot of the series the series is sometimes billed as like game of thrones in space right like occasionally like that's the pitch especially for the second series lysander is that perspective lysander's perspective is that billing to me because he's the one of whom has to play all of these very political games virginia has a little bit of it too but in particular he feels so mistreated in the way that like a game of thrones character does for his own decisions i'm not saying he doesn't deserve what he's going through by any stretch but or like hasn't earned or doesn't follow that trajectory but when when like we get buddy buddy and like fun fun with darrow and lyria it doesn't feel <laughs> the same <laughs> as a lysander chapter of like oh yeah no he had a bad time yeah <laughs> it's always like lysander had a bad time and that's like you could summarize most of lysander's chapters in this book as lysander had a bad time that's probably true that's yeah, yeah. Even the times when he's running his own circus, like running his own games, he's not having a great time. He's performing for someone else, yeah. you know, like he's never it's it. It doesn't suck to be Lysander, but like it kind of he kind of gets dealt a, a hand based on the choices he's made. Right. And you just wish that he would have made different choices so that he wouldn't be dealt the shit hand. Mm the treating him like mushrooms line and like not <laughs> respecting them and like letting them just bloom. Oh my God. Fucking grown. Keeping oh, them in love the dark it. and feeding them shit. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yep. <laughs> fucking crazy. Like, good shit. So I, good. I've heard that line in reference to like parents raising teenagers, like teenagers really? te- te- like treat their parents like mushrooms. Oh, keep them in fair. the dark and feed the them other shit. Way. The other way. Feed them yeah. bullshit. Yeah. yeah. That, doesn't feel wrong based on our experiences <laughs> i'm out of coffee i just cheers you with a little coffee mug that i have nothing i'm in. out of everything. Uh, i have water me right. too me too we'll take a break after this one to reload real quick but we then return to the friends the aforementioned friends starting with cicero of whom gives him our buddy i'm not gonna call him our boy but our buddy our good Lysander, friend our great protagonist our accomplice <laughs> The man who Lysander. has never done anything wrong. Good Wait boy, Lysander. <laughs> but Cicero, of course, and hands him 
back his scepter to lead the Lightbringer and his armada. Pallas, I don't think she's Al Bologna, but she is representing the Bolognas, disagrees and believes that they should return home on behalf of the Bologna family. Lysander responds indirectly by calling to his troops and rallying them predictably, as he would. And I say predictably because he also views this all as theater, which means that he's not in it, which is just such a funny way of inspirational management, realizing that you need to do something, but not actually liking the idea of doing it. Like that level of understanding is so interesting. And I want to bring up like a real life thing here, unless like no, you so, react first so and then I'll this, talk about that. Yeah. This feels completely on par with him. Yeah. And the, the, this feels, I, I always think back to his commentary on Atalantia when he refers to her as someone he hates almost as much as he hates himself. Like this is a man who truly loathes himself in all the venom and loathing that he has for Atalantia. He seems to hate himself more. So Mm -hmm. he understands this game of political theater that he's playing. He understands it back and forth and is playing it very, very, very well. We can dislike his decisions. Mm-hmm. We can dislike his thoughts, whatever. He's playing it well, all of it. And that doesn't mean that he likes what he's doing. He just, he understands it so well that he knows what he has to do, even if what he has to do is fucking atrocities. <laughs> He's still he's still willing to do them, so like that doesn't mm-hmm. absolve him of that. But not he's not deriving joy in any way from any of his actions throughout no, any of this story. Sure. He definitely isn't. And I, I think that that's a great talking point, especially with this, is like this is him understanding what needs to be done and doing it, not him believing in what needs to be done. And it's kind of this breaking point to some degree between the way that he was acting before in the way that he was confidently speaking to these people and believing in these messages that he was giving them. And now he's not rudderless, but his rudder has been forced in a direction. And so he no longer has control of steering. And so he has to do the thing that he needs to. I was going to describe it like he's a scholar in a theater. As opposed to yeah, a sure. man forging a path. Absolutely. And and that's such an interesting change, because if we think about it, like in Iron Gold and most of Dark Age, Lysander was the the scholar, right? And he was the guy of whom didn't realize what actually was required of him to do these things. Now he's become the man of a kind of a man of action, even if it's disingenuous in some ways. And he breaks from like his own moral code at different times for all kinds of different reasons. He, at the very least, is a man of action, even if it is disingenuous in some fashion. But now he's kind of forced back into a combination of his old ways and his new ways because mm-hmm. he understands what works and what needs to work, which is fascinating. Yeah. Just as a point here that I, I kind of want to add from a real life perspective, Andrew and I, our, our audio editor and I were actually co-employees at one point for a company. He was my manager for a brief period. He's also younger than I am by, God, what is it, like six months, something like that. It's not that much, but he was managing me for like three months and we became close friends as part of that experience. 
And we fundamentally managed to similar results, but in completely different ways. And that reminds me specifically of Lysander's like dichotomy of like believing in a message and preaching something versus like understanding what needs to be said. It's just interesting. Are you calling Andrew, dear Andrew, a Lysander stand in? Andrew would admit to being Lysander. <laughs> That's the important thing. No, no, no. And, no, and in a Diomedes-esque fashion, that's important because Lysander would not admit to himself that he is who he is, but Diomedes would. And that is something that I believe that Andrew would do wholeheartedly. He would call himself a shill and a cheat and whatever in different moments. Not really a cheat by any stretch, but you know what I mean? Like he would he would call it out very honestly as it was. And that was always his bag. Meanwhile, 23-year-old Crossland was stuck up his ass with stoic philosophy and loved it and led that way so all right you know yeah fair enough was a little bit of a different different stretch it's fun don't need to talk about it more than that but that's you know just a fun little little comparison we're great friends so lysander though moves from there and then speaks to his troops as he takes back control of the fleet and orates in grand fashion after what the plan is to be lysander is to tackle and take down Fa as he has done incalculable damage to the cause of the society. So we talked about this a little bit before, but this this is seemingly with the Ashvar call setting up this hidden race for glory between him and Darrow that neither of them understand is a race. Rather floppy one-sided race that is entirely set by Atlas. <laughs> but right um the pace established yeah it is kind of funny to see them both pining after the same goal one of them sincerely one of them strictly for theater yeah absolutely it is uh it it is very interesting to see how that's actually going to play out of course as we see that happen over the coming weeks so i'm excited i loved your prediction as well i'm not going to hold you accountable for it because i didn't take all of it down because it was so complex that there's not like an ab judgment but if you're wrong i'll drink if i'm wrong it'll be pretty obvious if i'm wrong yeah 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 i'm just not going to call it out specifically like we yeah typically or conditionally do so we then get to more private conversations and there's this mention of glorostes as we return to lysander's valet exeter and it is too much for me. This is sort of the other side of emotional pain that is is tough to deal with. It doesn't move me to tears by any stretch, but it just makes me understand that feeling of loss. And I think back to the man, and despite him being a coward more than once, like, it's still... Man, you, you hoped for better. Mm. But I guess, you know, Mangala didn't deserve better, so... Fair. He Glorostes could have done such good for the for mm-hmm. Darrow, for the Republic, for anyone other than Lysander. Uh, yes, yeah, the potential loss. The potential loss. But it is something that I'm kind of surprised that we didn't get more commentary on on Darrow's side of things about the potential. But Darrow doesn't really know. Darrow was mad about it in Dark Age. That's like yeah. Not- it's just it, it feels like maybe. Yeah, you're you're right. There's been so little uh, chance for the dissemination of intel that there hasn't been a chance for outrage. So it's all good. It's all good. 
is what it is. But worse than Glorostes, of course, is the conversation that comes with Pytha. The fact that Lysander decides to lie to Pytha and keeps it all the same without any consideration for the fact that she is practically his like teenage mother figure just like stab me in the heart and tear it out. Yeah, it does break, but for none of the reasons anticipated, he cries, you know, and, and based on her understanding, that's about the trauma that he experienced in the battle. But that has nothing to do with what why he's crying and why he is the sad, soppy, rag piece of shit that he is. It's about the lack but, of trauma that he received at the, at the battle. Right. <laughs> yeah. And in reality, in the end, that's his like fruits made manifest. He is reaping what he's sown here with Pytha emotionally mm-hmm. because he hasn't been honest. And at this point, he'd probably be dead if he was. But what's better, dead or honest? Yeah, it was particularly brutal. This scene, thinking about and reading his inner monologue and him knowing that he wanted so badly and had resolved to tell her everything after losing Roan as a confidant, and then still, still not doing that. I do wonder what would have happened if he had confided in her. I can't imagine that he's actually got any amount of privacy at this point. I I don't think he should ever assume to be truly able to speak freely, but I wonder if he was given a scenario where he was truly able to speak freely and talk to Pytha the way that his heart wants to, what she would do. If she would be on his side, if she would rage against it, if she would try to coerce him to act differently, like what what would she do? And I don't know. I don't know her that well, to be fair. It's, it's so interesting because Pytha was willing to rejoin the society right like that's that's her end here to some degree mm-hmm. so unlike cassius of whom isn't bending back to that master did and i can't blame her for that decision but i also can't feel like she would be very upset with the path that lysander has walked so were it to be revealed i agree with you to a certain degree uh, yeah but i'm not i'm not saying that's holistically a thing no I'm just like, trying to, no it, you know. it is a thing but i i don't think i don't think her decision to and her reasoning for rejoining the society and being willing to rejoin the society is indicative of her views on the politics of the society. I think it's probably mm-hmm. more so a selfish reasoning. She understands that she would be one of the highest ranking officials in the government mm-hmm. given her relation to Lysander. So like there is that. Yeah. It could be very easily dismissed as a selfish act as opposed to one that is, I I genuinely believe that this is good for people. Like it, it, She might be perfectly selfish in her decision to go along with what Lysander is doing. And it could also be fear. Like if she decided not to, what's Lysander going to do with her? True. Yeah, she is trapped on that side of the equation she might make a different choice if she wasn't but you know she's been a mercenary for the last decade or so so yeah i don't think her moral mercenary is one to be perfectly trusted as indicative of anything society versus republic yeah yeah totally get that cool all right with that we get into chapter 65 lyria 
into the maelstrom. It's a short chapter, uh, but Lyria carries a message to Volga as she heads up and out of the deep. Lyria reflects how much has changed since all those years ago when she would have been clutching at her siblings' hands going through a singular moment like this. And at the end of that, she finds Cassius has joined her on this journey to the surface. So the transformation that Lyria has gone through is is obvious. It's something that we've been commenting up on a book, all series. She's been growing. She's been changing. But it is very, very nice to see her recognize it in herself. Which is, I'm sure there are other things that you could point to. And I'm sure because I'm dumb and I can't remember things because my brain is broken. I'm sure there are points where she points it out herself. And I'm sure there are points where she points it out herself and I comment on how nice that is. But this feels like the first time <laughs> that she has pointed it out in her own brain. It, it's It's been culminating at the very least. And this is just another moment of it culminating. Mm. Yeah. There's also a lovely moment that happens between her and Cassius here, which is just like this, like, of course, I'm not going to let you go and I'm going to protect you until like as far as I can. And it, it's just this like excellent moment of Cassius showing again that he is the knight that we all know him as. For sure. And it it also makes me realize how much time these characters are spending together outside of what we see, because mm -hmm. these trips take months. Mm -hmm. these these voyages are so yeah, they spent a quarter on the on the on the ship together at this yeah point. exactly so while it feels like they just met to us they've they've spent every day together for months and that's a lot closer than a lot of people are to most people that they know true yeah very good point, especially that like it's there's like an intimate friendship here mm -hmm. in that way. There is a good little Fight Club style reference here between the two of them as well as while they're conversing <laughs> as they talk back and forth about the rules. He says, don't get caught and that there isn't another rule as she repeats that back to him. As they approach the surface, though, their entire world shifts and this obsidian that emerges from the depths begins to kill and the, this entire scene changes as that Harbringer has arrived, and we know that many more are coming. Oh, holy shit. Is it actually an obsidian? It felt, the way it was described, it felt alien in some, was it an Askimani? Was it uh, something else entirely? Or was it like a designation of the, like, like the Askimani, or not the Askimani, the, the Volk had their... Not the Volk, the the Obsidian in general had their Scoogie. Like, what was was it a a normal Obsidian person with this Harbinger designation, or was it a twisted version of an Obsidian that was kind of a monster coming forward? Based on Sigurd's reaction, my understanding is that this feels more like a an Askamani thing. Being that, like, this is the harbinger of what is to come, right? So, so as, harbinger as wasn't implies. Like, like the name for this. No, I, I think I think it also is okay. The name for this, in, in the same way that like stained is a name and a title and something that's earned. Someone might or berserker. Someone might be appointed 
or like handed like a title to be like the first one to charge in. I don't think that there's anything uniquely like alien or otherworldly outside of the choice and the sudden brutality to be there. Right. So it okay. feels otherworldly, especially from Lyria's perspective at this point, her like understanding of obsidian violence, I think is relatively limited, not completely isolated, but like in this regard of seeing war is very, very different, very limited. And she's our perspective. Okay. So to her, it's otherworldly, regardless. Gotcha. At the very least, that's my understanding. That, of a, that, that tracks. That makes sense. Yeah. I wasn't sure what to make of it. So, With that, we go into chapter 66. Lyria, the fall of Heracleon. The fall of Heracleon is a banger of a chapter, not only from title, but also from content. Um, Lyria experiences the raw force of the Volk as they leap from the waters and war to life. Cassius and Sigurd quickly down a berserker as they take off to meet with Sigurd's planned ride. Hmm. I wasn't expecting action from a Lyria scene, <laughs> from a Lyria chapter. <laughs> I wasn't yeah. I wasn't exact, expecting like actual technical fighting like this and it was fun to see her describe what we know could be described much more technically but like she describes it jaggedly and chaotically I I I like the commitment that Pierce Brown seems to have to these perspectives and allows us to really see through their eyes as opposed to defaulting back to how he writes combat, you know? It it really gives weight to the POV, right? And I think that is also why, when you were describing the previous chapter, it does feel like the Herald is completely otherworldly. And it is this, I, or the Harbinger, not the Herald, mm -hmm. that just feels so different and strange it is just an eight foot tall i went back and looked it's just an eight foot tall obsidian with just fins an eight on foot tall dude that just starts murdering <laughs> right but it's still, it's still like just an obsidian like it could from darrow's perspective right this would this chapter would have an entirely different context is but eight from feet within the, the film, normal height of an obsidian i think it's stretched like that's taller than average but keep in mind darrow is like i, I want to say 610 right he's my um, height Six seven. I thought he was I, a little bit taller. Maybe than that. maybe he was a because little I bit thought taller. that people were correcting that, that when could we be. mentioned it. Like, I remember I That's remember us talking I about it. him being my. Height. I think I think he's just a little <laughs> bit taller than okay. you, but basically your height. But then obsidians go up to like eight and a half. If okay, I remember okay. correctly. Ragnar is is noted as I believe over eight feet tall, so or like close to. Darrow has to look up at Ragnar, which is terrifying. I will say, just to kind of bring this backwards a little bit, I think about this a lot because like throughout the day, I'm working all day before we record. Mm -hmm. um, but if you go to patreon.com forward slash words and whiskey, maybe I don't have to work all day before we record. Maybe this is my primary job. That'd be pretty cool. Sorry. But while I'm working, I listen to the audiobooks. Is like mm -hmm. it's, that tends to be my day is I, I listen to the audiobooks as many times as I can in the days leading up to our recording and TGR Tim Gerard Reynolds uh, somebody that we talk about often because he does such a phenomenal a job with this audiobook 
he also does not default back to the he puts on a different accent for Lyria, a different voice for Lyria, and then Cassius an when yeah. a, when Cassius is talking in Lyria's chapter, it's a different voice than when Cassius is talking in Darrow's chapter because the affectation that he puts on his voice is consistent, but it it like it, it just makes everything feel so much more true to that character as opposed to. Like, there's something to be said about being consistent across characters and making a narrative story and, like, an audio drama. But this isn't an audio drama. This is a book being read. And it's nice to have the differences in affectations. But it's also, in that same way, nice to have the perspective differences on the characters that are not the perspective character. I, I don't I don't know how to describe it. I don't know the words no, well I, enough. I totally get it. I track. It's really track. cool. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's very cool. It's very well done. And I think especially managing perspectives. It's also something that's kind of unique um to this versus a lot of the other things that we've read, right? Is that it is because it's first person, because it's limited POV. Um, we are locked in these voices for different chunks of time. And so it exposes us to more immediate emotions. And also those variances from uh, point of views and affectations. Mm. I would be unsurprised if it turns out that that was unintentional and a a relic of the fact that he has to put on such a different voice from Lyria as opposed to Darrow. So when he is reading through this chapter and switches into what Cassius says, it's because he's already in that in that mode of how he's speaking with Lyria that when he shifts to Cassius, it takes on a different like tonal shift as opposed to when he's in Darrow's voice. Like, I I wouldn't be surprised if that's the case, like if it was entirely unintentional, but we should get TGR on. We've been saying that since book one, but you know, I would love to, we definitely should. I would love to talk to TGR. I would love to talk really to like a number of audiobook narrators i'd love to have conversations with just to like talk through their side of that process so yeah. you know like michael kramer would be incredible he is a minnesotan mm. which is a fun fact he's got but no accent as far as i can tell so no yeah and his wife is british kate redding is british as well so turncoat fuck you <laughs> <laughs> All right. There are a couple of quotes that I really appreciate here within kind of the early parts of this chapter. Cassius's moment with Lyria as they're running away and and like protecting her as much as he can. He says, I'm your shield. Stay in my shadow. And that is just a perfect mm-hmm. line encapsulation of uh, of Cassius as a knight. I really love Morning that. Morning knight. Um, yeah. It, you, you know, you think about like the, the way that... Um, some characters are like turned into posters and they're turned into like bookmarks or like whatever else. To me, that is Cassius's poster. That is yep. his thing. Yeah. I'm your shield. Stay in my shadow. I just for me, it's perfect. So the next, though, is the way that Lyria describes Jupiter hanging overhead. And she says, Jupiter stains the glass and stone buildings in bronze light. And it's just so important to remember that they're on this moon, that they're dealing with other forces that aren't just the sun lighting things up, 
but this sort of like dim brownish reflection coming off of this pearl of the distant solar system is so good. It's so small, but it's so good. The, this quote specifically snapped me into this beautiful, gorgeous setting of the, the chaos of the fighting that's going on, but the, surrounded by the awe of the planet and the moon drifting around. Yeah. Like, I can't imagine that there's that much atmosphere like open because there are so many moons like i'm i'm, I'm sure 99 mm. jupiter is the, so massive like, that you probably don't see the other moons sometimes but well, yeah there's I understand. that but also like you can see around jupiter i'm sure like I'm, I'm sure jupiter takes up a good chunk of the sky but not all of it like but but still it is so different than looking at the sky in like just go outside and look up like you probably don't see a dominating it's, like planetary it's body to, that's that you're orbiting. Like you don't you 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 see the moon and it takes up a tiny little sliver of the sky. Whereas this is it'd be closer to the Earth rise shots, right? Yeah, you see yeah, from exactly. the moon to Earth, exactly. right? But but that magnified by the size differential, which is insane. Yeah. So yeah. I'm imagining and like. I don't know exactly. I couldn't pinpoint it, but I know that there is a map on Star Wars Battlefront 2 on PlayStation 2 or PSP where I played it primarily um, that has like a dominating planet in the sky Mm -hmm. when you're fighting. I don't remember what map it is, but like that's what I'm imagining here. Like I I know that exists. I know it does. Or mm-hmm. or it's a different game and I'm mistaken, but No, I'm I'm pretty sure you're right. I just don't remember the map either specifically, but I'm ninety five percent sure it's mm-hmm. right. Yeah. Yeah. One of one of the moons. And it does give it's just it's otherworldly in the way that it should it's be. So sci-fi. Science fiction it's so series. sci-fi. Yeah. It's so cool. I'm so excited yeah. to see this translated. <laughs> if we if we Me get it. too. Me too. When we get it. When we get it. Mm-hmm. But Pierce in the immortal words of our friend Thomas, the man, the bomb, Boomhauer, bomb. gives us just a fucking meal for the rest of this chapter. We get excellent descriptions of the Greys taking out ships. We see a ship from orbit fire back a pillar of light that erases a shop. We and we just, oh my God, it's this like tether between this distant lake in the sky. And it just, it's gone. And there's just so much here that makes this terrible Oscamani raid feel so real and tangible in a way that we've never understood or under or has been explained to us before. We now have a picture of the terror of the obsidian. It's, it's enrapturing and it's terrible and it's brutal. And but it's, it's fucking cool. so fucking cool. <laughs> yeah. 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 Thanks, Boom. Thanks, Boom, for uh, lending your voice for that. Thanks also to Thomas for being like, hey, if Cross is still sick, I'll come in. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that would have been pretty good. It would have been a fun one. Would have been better than whatever shit we've got going right now. How dare you? Cassius, having arrived at the pickup location, gives Lyria a kiss on the forehead and then takes off despite a little bit of protestation. 
This leaves Sigurd alone, and he almost gets into a conflict confrontation with a first man group of Askamani before Judmund the Jolly and Fenrir arrive to save them from the wrath of the asteroid obsidians. Judmund, not Goodmund. Goodmund, Goodmund, Judmund. I fucked that up. Jif, Gif, what is it? I, I think TGR says Goodmund. It's Goodmund. It's definitely Goodmund. I said Judmund because I am <laughs> a little bit intoxicated, folks. Fenrir is Norse. Like all of this is Norse, I'm sure, mm-hmm. but Fenrir I recognize as a Norse. Um, Obviously. Yeah. Like I'm sure most most obsidian have Norse derived names, but Fenrir is one that like is perfectly recognizable to me, and I can't recall exactly what that comes from. You don't? Fenrir is like the one of the most important parts of Ragnarok. Uh, I believe that it is his death specifically that heralds Ragnarok. So, okay, very important, very important yeah. to the whole, the whole of that. I do recommend PJ if you're looking for something fun to read on the side, which I know you are from time to time. You have to finish the Ninth House. I don't know if you have yet. I but... haven't yet. I still do. Okay. I so so. Fun fact, I canceled my Kindle Unlimited before it before it lapsed, and I just turned my Kindle on airplane mode so I can still read it. Nice. <laughs> I'm like halfway through. Fair enough. Fair enough. I, I really personally like The Ninth House. I didn't love Hellbent, but I liked The Ninth House. But Norse Mythology by Neil Gaiman. Have you read any Gaiman, PJ? I have never read Gaiman. My God, I'm gonna have to figure out how to do a short pour on a Gaiman book. We're gonna have to do one. Have I you have ever read Coraline. Nope. Have you watched Coraline? I've watched Coraline. Okay, so at the very least, like you've got an idea. I didn't know it was Gaiman. It's yeah, it's Gaiman. Cool. Sandman. Did you watch the Sandman show? Nope. Not that that like super matters, but that's a good example. Obviously, you haven't watched American Gods or read American Gods. Jesus Christ, what am I going to do with you? They're just like a handful of these authors. That you like already started a podcast to make me read shit. I fucking know, well, all right? <laughs> make Very me read aware. shit. We did talk. Hey, in the middle of this, I'm going to pitch this. For you of whom listen on Spotify, I'm going to add this as our Spotify question of the week. What Gaiman book that I post here should we read? To do a break between books at some point in one of the next two series that we read. We've been asked as a part of fandoms, as a part of like people of whom are subscribers, that sometimes reading nine books in a row by the same author or seven or whatever is a lot to ask of a person, especially to be exposed to the same prose. So for a break book in one of the next series that we choose to read, what Gaiman book would you want us to cover? That's going to be the question. I'm going to give you a couple of options. Are we, are we, so I understand that people like read books a lot faster than I do. I understand (laughs) that people take less than a couple months to read one book and then continue to read the same series for almost or more than a year. Do people get, is it uncommon to be able to just blow through an entire series like this? No, I mean, like, I think a lot of people do and they, like, get 
I, you know, I can, I can speak to this from a level on our Patreon. A lot of us read through the Stormlight Archive for the first time together, kind of like vaguely at the same time, or we're reading through different parts of the books. By the time that I and others got around to Rhythm of War after reading 3,800 pages consecutively, plus a couple of like novellas in there. And having, for me at the very least, previously read Warbreaker, Elantris, and Mistborn, basically contiguous to get to this point, I felt pretty burnt out on Brandon Sanderson's like prose and style and things like that. As such, I want to respect that for something like the first law, of which is nine books, right? Which of which we're going to cover next. Naturally, there's going to be a little, little bit of a break in the middle during the standalones at some point. When Red God comes out, we'll be able to hop over the red god but perhaps before we jump into the final trilogy or whatever we end up doing we'll squeeze in that gaiman book which i think is a good one to to squeeze in okay so also as a note within the dark tower there are massive gaps in stephen king's writing of the series like i think the longest one is 13 years between books so like there is a gap that people had to fill with other time and other things And as such, I kind of feel like it's appropriate for us to read something else in between. So we might break that up with like just like a bonus book before going back. We won't take the same sort of labor of time as we do with a regular series. But I think that it's good to like maybe consider mixing in something else. It's a consideration. So definitely vote in the poll. Okay. You heard that Spotify users. Everyone can vote. That has a Spotify account. Anyone listening? <laughs> leave a comment, leave a review. You know, you can, you can do whatever you like. We love you. There's a final moment that happens here to round out the chapter between Sigurd and Lyria before he leaves, afraid of what will happen when Fa finds Sigurd, knowing he surrendered to Darrow. Sigurd says, It is our people who should thank you. Unnatural or not, Volga is the blood of Ragnar. The longer she is under Fa's sway, the deeper we fall away from Ragnar's dream. We must return to the sun, the smiles of our mothers. We must have a queen. I tire of kings. He speaks the truth. Women are just objectively better. Strictly? Strictly, I'd say. Yeah, no disagreement here. Yeah. Yep. I know myself. I know you. I know a lot of other folks. And <laughs> Good. <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, <laughs> actually, <laughs> let me, let me correct. I know you, me, my brother, my dad, my mom, my stepmom, my stepdad, and that's it. That's it. That's all but, I got. I mean, that's oh, my sister. Yeah. But like, do I know her? I don't know. Mm, no. My like other sister and brother. Is it truly possible to know them? Is it? Could we, I mean, not in a biblical sense. That's not what we're talking about at all. PJ, how dare you insinuate that with your eyebrows? But this quote, I just love, I love this quote and like Sigurd finally like admitting <laughs> um, like this idea of of just what's needed and what's necessary from the Obsidian perspective. Moving on. <laughs> I, I need a I hard so break about that one. I need a hard <laughs> break because otherwise I'm going to talk about how you fuck your siblings, I guess. Oh, no, it was a bit. It was a bit. Please don't. All right. With that, chapter 67, Lyria, Volga. This is not a very long chapter, but I have a lot to say about this chapter. It's a very short chapter. 
it's 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 not ridiculously short, but I think it's only no. seven pages. You know, unlike Into the Maelstrom, which I think is like four. But I just have so many feelings about what goes on here between the two of them, and it only gets worse in the next chapter as it actually is exasperated to some degree. We open this chapter with just a brutal image as the pair of obsidians are bringing Lyria into the fold and into the obsidian underbelly as she's infiltrated. And we see this chain of golds together turned into chum for the Leviathan as one is kicked off and the rest follow as the weight sinks into the deeps. And holy fuck, what a what a sight. What a shift, man. Like, think about we we talked a little bit about the big the first fifty chapters of Red Rising. Yeah. And how it retrospectively or retroactively became a much better written like the story became better with context of what came later. And the writing but, doesn't change, but everything else does. Exactly. But these gods these gods walking among us from the first 50 chapters of or first 50 pages of red rising are reduced to literal small fish chum in the matter of a couple thousand pages. Yeah. It's been a long time. It's been a lot of story. It's clearly, but for whatever reason I was on this like brainwave of thinking about early red rising when when we were going through this section and it's so different like even the grays even the grays felt larger than life from darrow's perspective and the golds were deities and a literal chain of these deities are just kicked by a man into a lake ocean but just planet uh. <laughs> <laughs> unceremoniously yeah, ended yeah. fed to something no more than them no more than a series of minnows chained together with uh with fishing line you know mm-hmm. it is it is both like a consequential realization and inconsequential depending on the the view of the whole thing so it's lovely but we then move on from this larger scene of scope of the obsidians into volga and we we cut away from this sort of bigger scene that almost feels reminiscent to me um, of Star Wars in the way that, like, you see, like, an Imperial trooper ship fly in, and then you see, like, the bigger scene afterwards that's more important. So you get context on what's happening because you see the troops moving around, you see whatever's going on. Then you move to the intimate scene. This is our intimate scene with Volga here, listening to Severo talk about Ragnar and trying to sway Volga away from Tha. Before we talk about Volga, I want to talk about the speech that Severo gives here, because he is really proving to be both an effective and an emotional orator as we round to the end of the series. This is such a growth point for him, and he always kind of like has been to some degree, but he's never been so eloquent and never been so pressed to become this person, which is why I think that this is so wonderful and representative of him. Like he tried during the gallows, but that's not entirely what this is. But we hear him speak about his friend who stole his candy and punted him at the slightest, smallest slight, you know, as he stole the candy bar. Like he talks about Ragnar with so much heart that it's impossible to not warm that part of your soul hearing 
about that man that we lost so long ago here. Mm -hmm. I like that Volga was able to, I, I guess the biggest thing for me is that Lyria had the sense to kind of be quiet and she's still seeing Volga's reaction and, and she understands that she's enraptured in this and isn't noticing presumably Lyria looking at her. But if that's true, and it seems like it, like it, it seems like if Volga noticed Lyria watching, she would have turned off the cube and waited until she had some privacy to watch this. But the fact that she doesn't tells me that this is resonating with her. This is this is truly making an impression, hopefully. It seems like it, it at the very least. It definitely does, you hope, right? Like, yeah. you hope that it is at this point. We know that it doesn't make the realization that we hope that it does by the end of this chapter. But man... Do you just want Severo to be that convincing orator that he was for the thousands of people that came before for her, especially with this personal and personalized story about the man that her father, father that she doesn't really know, indirect sperm donor, was. Mm -hmm. That blood in her veins that she so values, especially into next chapter, right? Like she mentions that specifically to Fa that we have this blood in our veins and he goes... It's not about the blood in our veins. It's about the power of the crown. And that's an important differentiation between right. Severo and Fa's points. But we get to Volga. And boy, oh, this fucking breaks my heart. To see that she's been charmed by the brute that is Fa and the power that he holds. And her being this inheritor of that power is painful. It's brilliant. It's well done. It sucks. But nothing, I think, hurts quite so bad as the citation that eating Ephraim's heart was a sign of respect for him. And, like, that's difficult to wrestle with in a number of different ways. Of course, we kind of understand from Fa's perspective that he actually did respect him and that it is kind of like a thing. But still to be demeaned so much by a member of this opposing faction in force, I mean, it hurts deeply for me. Her retort about Ephraim isn't necessarily wrong, that he isn't like a, he was never a father, he was a mercenary, he was kind of a piece of shit, he did a lot of things wrong, but it's not holistic, it's not a full view. And it's it's just a tough pill to swallow on the whole from Volga's right. perspective. Yeah. She has always been so impressionable, which was a weak point. Um, yeah. From the beginning, even though it served us, when Ephraim was kind of at the heart of that impression. Never, but it was like, yeah, it was it always was not manipulation. This is manipulation. Like that's kind of the maybe. Yeah, that's that's true from our yeah. perspective. But at the same time, like you could argue use this. Yeah, you could argue that it was, but different levels, different degrees, different levels, yeah. different degrees, same mechanism. So personality traits are personality traits. Yeah. The, this situation with Fa isn't different in that respect. And I, I can only really hope that that message we've been talking about from Severo shakes her a little bit and it might not be right away. Are you, are you familiar with Tesla's earthquake machine? Nikola Tesla's earthquake machine? Not immediately. No. Okay. 
So this is folklore. I don't, I mm-hmm. don't know how much, um, how much real math there is to it, but he produced this machine that you, that he attached to the foundation, like support beam of his building that, that resonated with it and was meant to kind of match the resonant frequencies and eventually crumble the building just from this small little compact device attached to the foundation. And the idea was that something similar could be created to literally break apart the earth theoretically. Okay. I understand. But it's all the idea of resonant frequencies. And like, you you can see some of that like theory applied in like bridges and like, you can go to YouTube and find out a lot about resonance for sure. But it all takes time. So hopefully this message message from Severo is a Tesla earthquake machine for Volga to break apart her brainwashing. Oh no. Oh God. I see. I see the work that you were doing now there. Good work. Good work. I love that. I love mm-hmm. that. Just something to, to yeah. slowly methodically rhythmically shake apart her entrenched brainwashing that she's received from fa over the time frame yeah good point love that really really appreciate that as a, as a point it's a lot more complex than that 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 is a very pared down rudimentary yeah. rudimentary version of how that worked uh go look that up it's a really cool I think there's a lot of speculation on how much of it is actually true in general. The theory of it is not <laughs> not rooted in reality, but the um, theory for a building could work. But yeah, the the rest yeah. of the earth is a is potentially a maybe kind of you could. There's so much I, variation in the the materials course, and in yeah. all yeah. things that go in. Like if it was uniform sure. and if it was like truly a uniform model that could be affected that way, maybe. But there, there's so many materials and so many variances in, within a building that I don't think there'd be a way to make a resonant crumbling device but i i might be wrong i i haven't looked into it as closely as i I should be curious i'll interrogate our other physics friend and discuss the idea Mm -hmm. so we'll call upon greg turlecki for his powers let's do it this would be fun so this of course only escalates and gets worse as lyria fires back at victra the quick-witted smart-mouthed woman that she is and their experiences that they've shared together up until this point as this sort of pressure point that she hopes to apply against Volga to understand their kinship, their bond. Most telling, of course, in this moment is the way that Volga almost calls herself out by saying, I am not a monster without any provocation. It's so sad. So sad. It makes it like it's not the right takeaway, but it makes me miss Ephraim. Like, I know, I know, like... But he reaffirmed that to her, you know what I mean? Like, I, I do understand why you miss Ephraim. Yeah. You know, that's, that's the whole point. This is something that she... This is beyond her dealing with Fa. This is, this is something that she has dealt with her entire life. Mm-hmm. And it is a gut reaction to anything that 
questions her decision making is calling into question whether or not she's a monster. Yeah. And that's painful. That's mm-hmm. tough to deal with. It is. And I'd argue, yeah, now she is. She is acting like a monster. She, she's acting like it. Acting. Maybe she isn't one. Maybe. But if she's doing it wholeheartedly and doing it with her, like, at what point do you become a monster? Even if you're redeemable, what point, like, at what point does that become true? Because it yeah. feels at pretty close point, to true at this point. At what point does that line break and a person is irredeemable, right? I'm not, I'm not talking like, irredeemable. You can be a monster and still be redeemable. At what point does it become true? Hmm. Okay. I guess I, I equate those lines similarly, but I understand what you're saying. Like, you can become a monster long before, like, you're even considering redeemable or not. Like, your actions can determine that well before. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. That's, that's a good point. Hmm. Like, unless a monster is, yeah. by definition, irredeemable. It depends on no, how no. you define it. No, no. And I, I don't... I think... Your definition before this point is actually better because it, it defines the fact that you can be a monster and like Darrow by many a monster, regards is totally. a monster. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Elsier is a monster in the way that he acts and behaves. In Tactus the was in the a monster. Book. Yeah. Tactus. Yes. Was he redeemable? Great question. Yeah. And but but up the fact debate. that it's not yeah. the fact that it's a question is is so important and that's why i mm-hmm. love people that talk about redemption as an idea for a character and not something that's off the table the moment that they do something wrong right so yeah. like i would argue that Le- volga is acting like a monster volga acting here like. isn't is, necessarily but acting like yeah. yeah but might be might be a might monster be. yep might be absolutely it's it's called into question and and this call or this this mantra of i'm not a monster is it, it carries a different weight in that respect in that i believe her but her actions don't back it up like it did before right her actions call that into question mm-hmm. and there's another side here as well with Volga that arises. There's this side of like education that's happened in her intervening time. We've had all these other relationships build. And of course, one is built between Volga and Fa. But one of the most important things for Volga is this sort of understanding of history and this enlightenment that it, she's experienced through the ability to read and the capability to understand and comprehend texts. And she sees these things. She sees these similarities in people and histories in a way that is very plain and textual for us as we're reading through this, but is enlightening to her in this moment to understand conquerors and the idea of conquering, considering the history that has been held back, especially from obsidians. (laughs) There's a quote here. Well, I mean, it's not really a quote, but Lyria draws the comparison between her and Harmony, and Volga in this moment stands her ground and offers Lyria her freedom in this passage home, Lyria, ever the firebrand, retorts, Aren't you listening? I don't want a path home. You are my people, Volga. I came here for you, and I'm not leaving without you. I already lost one sister. I won't lose you, too. <sighs> she has such good instincts. 
Always. She she always has, and it's always worked out for her. She takes these stands, these risks, and they haven't been as dire necessarily. Some of them have, but but for the most part, like they've been a little bit smaller scale, and that's okay. But because they've totally worked out. Her interactions with Darrow have totally worked out. Her interactions with Kavax have totally worked out. And it feels counter to what is normal. And this one, unfortunately, despite rooting for it and wanting it, seems like a miss. It's unfortunate. It's still a great speech. It's still really well done. And it it would have swayed... All of the people that came before this, where she took a stand if they were in the same situation. Mm-hmm. But if Olga doesn't, like, she maybe does, but we know the outcome a little bit later. I've got I've got some reservations about what might happen, which could uh, go against what I'm saying here. But how it's presented within the next couple chapters feels like a miss, unfortunately. She tried. She swung. Yeah, she, she swung didn't hard. make a mistake. I don't think. Right. I don't I, like by it being a miss. I don't think it's a mistake. I think it just didn't work out the way that it has historically for her. We end this chapter with the heads of Goodmund and Fenrir falling into Lyria's lap as it's unveiled that that part of the plot has unfurled itself one way or another. Plop. Bull. Yeah, I like those guys. I really like them. I did too. It's it's kind of sad that they're dead so quick, you know. But I do. I don't like I, you mentioned earlier. Man, I fucking love TGR's like very cartoonish Scandinavian um, accent that he gives. Yeah, some of the general obsidian that we interact with. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Yeah, it, I mean, it feels like us. It feels like home. It feels like yeah. uh, Minnesota, Iron Classic. Range, Minnesota, right. <laughs> almost. Right. Like if, if mm-hmm. you go a couple hours north, like y- yes, we have a fairly strong accent. I would say your yours less than mine. I would guess. I fun fact: few people can pick out where I'm from based on me talking because yeah. they don't assume. But there are a couple of words that there do are a give couple words that give you sure. away. But I, I'd say I probably have the stronger accent. You definitely have the stronger accent. But yeah. Fenrir and what's his <laughs> give it away right away. Yeah. Goodman. Yeah. That's that's the if you if you see the Coen Brothers movie Fargo, it's a very good representation of the cartoonish exaggeration of the Minnesota accent. That we're talking about. That we're yeah. talking about. And it it, it, it embodies them. It, but it's rooted in Scandinavia, I'd say. Yeah. And this is reminiscent of that, I guess. All right, cool. With that, let's get into chapter 68, Lyria, the king and his court. We find ourselves on the Nixian Isles. PJ, any idea on this reference? Uh, no. No? <laughs> well... <laughs> It has to do... Did you ever play Hades? Did you play Hades? Nope. God damn it. You have to play Hades. But it Steam has deck? to do with Nyx or phone. Yeah, of course. I. It's coming to phone. It's not out yet, but it okay. will be soon, okay. actually. But you can play on Steam Deck, computer, the PS4 that you have, whatever works. 
but any number of options i, for, I, I have had put, tim's ps4 <laughs> there were only a couple of games that i put several or your switch you could play it on your switch too oh because that's, that's where i first played it was on my switch there are only a couple of games in the last several years that i put hundreds of hours into slay the spire elden ring and hades are the three that have gotten my most attention over the time frame okay but anyway I digress. Go play it. It's a ton of fun. It's a great story game. It's a little bit of a roguelike. It's wonderful. Love it. Easy to pick up and drop off, which is the other side. Like it doesn't require consistent commitment to like sit there and play for a long time, which I know is like one of your things. But the Nixian Isles has a lot to do with Nix or Nox, the Greek slash Roman goddess of night. She's referenced a handful of times in the Iliad and the Odyssey and equated a handful of times over the course of the series as they talk about night. And obviously it's this primordial essence that permeates a lot of the mythology. It's great, of course, as you're equated to these unique islands. And to me, this is more of like a namesake than it is anything else. This is not something that is very referential necessarily, but it does have like a wink and a nudge and a nod to, to Nix and yeah. this idea. Nix or Nox. Like yeah, I, I get that nuts. it's not that critical to the story itself, but do you think it's the Roman one or the Greek one? Like, <laughs> which one? Which one could it be? The Noxian Isles, if it was the Roman one. That's so a good point. The That's a good point. These Isles. So this is Greek. They really should have like gotten together and shared some As redundant note, workload. I, I wanted to you just know. say this is more of a general <laughs> thing, but the the rim adheres more to Greco naming nomenclature than the core does, which adheres to Roman nomenclature. That's really interesting. That's really cool. <laughs> yeah, isn't it? I, I hadn't it's not entirely noticed accurate, it. But it's pretty I close. understand it that well. Because I'm a dummy. But that's pretty sweet. It's not your area of expertise. I really enjoyed the conversation with Nicotur here as the copper explains to us the hierarchy that is being reestablished with Lyria directly by the Obsidians and how they have supported that inadvertently. There's this wonderful bit where she offers her this pill as Lyria views it and she flicks it off because she's not going to kill herself. And then she explains that it wasn't to kill herself. It was a breath mint so that she didn't have to taste her own breath inside of the mask that was to come. It was a it was a light release. Would you get to understand Lyria's perspective on it? Be like this is this is a subversion of expectation if I've ever read one. But it's it's just great. I mean, naturally, if this person was born in the core, they'd be called Nakator. Um, <laughs> <laughs> something yeah. I greatly appreciated about all of this was a quote of you know, regarding the hierarchy and it basically being yes. recreated yep. in this scenario if you grew up in a house that is square what shape would you think to build your house in such a great quote and i'm sure there like i feel like i've heard that before so i i'm not convinced that this is unique here or this is not evocative of something more famous if i'm wrong and it, it this is unique to this uh, i apologize mr pierce brown but for some reason, I feel like I've heard that argument made before. But either way, it's a great um, great point to bring up in this scenario. Obviously, through the lens of the, Re the Republic and the Daughters, we know that society, lowercase s society, can be built 
in ways that don't mirror the hierarchy of the society capital s but it's it's cool to see the rationalization and it's almost certainly influenced by some amount of propaganda like i i can't imagine that this but that's not true i could imagine this popping up in a vacuum but that would be a vacuum devoid of information on how the world worked under the society whereas the this feels like they tried to cut that all out and rebuild in the way that was the quote unquote most logical um without taking into consideration how the society treated the lower colors of which so are I, the obsidian i i think i think this book goes to great lengths to try to define the way that cultures can grow like within or without right especially if you think about the perspective from mateo and quick and they're playing with the oculus slash tabula rasa right like Will they reestablish a hierarchy immediately in the same way that we expect that the Obsidians already did? No. The other side to evaluate the Obsidians from is it's obviously being manipulated. This has nothing to do with quote. I love the quote. I think it's incredible. And I think that it raises this whole question, which is fascinating to interrogate. But is this not just Atlas's manipulation in some way manifest, right? Like, is this not just a re-representation of the same thing? I think so. Atlas knows it's effective, right? And so to the effect of the quote, this is saying like we repeat the mistakes of our forefathers because it's the only thing that we know to do, basically. We're mimetic. We're mimetic creatures. I don't disagree with that on premise. But in this context, it's like manipulated mimeticism. Yeah, it's, it's I, I guess propaganda might be the wrong way to put it. But yeah, this, it's close. I understand where you're close. going for this rationalization of how a very similar structure could be growing. Even mm -hmm. if they had no interaction with Atlas or somebody influenced by Atlas to see what's going on within this Volk Oscamani Fa led society and say like, Hey, that looks a lot like the society pyramid. That's because they lived under it for so long that they don't know anything else and they're just building what they know. Like th that's a, that's a great rationalization, even though it's entirely bullshit and, and fed by Atlas and by, by extension, the society remnant. It does. Like it is, it has that sort of political extension. I love that comparison, PJ. I think that you've done a wonderful job expounding upon the the side of the side that I was looking for. You know, PJ, there are, there are moments in which I like write ideas or thoughts here, and like I just want for you to like dig in. And this was a perfect dig in moment, if that makes sense for me. You're just playing in the sandbox that has a like floor. I'm well, I'm, yeah, I'm digging in the sand. At yeah, the beach. so like I, there's no floor to as, that beach. 
as the leader, one of the troubles is sometimes like I might want to dig into something, but if you don't immediately, like this is the trouble between like Hellerpod and us, or not the trouble, but like a disparity or a difference between Hellerpod, Hail Reaper, and us and Fade to Obsidian is that because we are sort of a pure read podcast, I there are things that I want to dig into, but if you don't pick up on them, we don't get to dig into them until much later, until like we do our recaps and stuff like that. But every once in a while, like you catch wind of something that I'm going for and we just get to talk about it for a bit, which is great. And this is a perfect example of that because I did want to cite that quote, but I didn't feel I felt like it was too precise to cite. And so it's it's sorry to say that you were playing in the sandbox that didn't have an actual bottom. Uh, Well, (laughs) I I learned to I potty train myself in the sandbox. So like I. I'm very aware of sandboxes and I've been in that sandbox. It was gross. You were not. (laughs) I don't think you were ever in that sandbox. Not that you couldn't have been. You didn't live that far away. But Adam was anyway. I'm kidding. With that, we return to Volga and Lyria and get Lyria gets her first proper meeting with Thaw. And he's still a very intimidating obsidian by all accounts. Of course, he's this commander. He's this terrifying voice as we hear from the end of TGR's register by all accounts but Lyria tries her best and spits out truth about Atlas although no one at the party pays attention to her in this victory moment the voice from TGR was insane it was a lot more I was closer to Ragnar I think in my my (laughs) estimation you were closer to Fa. (laughs) His his is comical. His is it is it truly is. His, yeah. his is something that is not sustainable. It's not a speaking voice. TGR is great at his range of speaking voices. Foz is outside of that consideration. Foz is entirely. It, it's just not. It's just not something that you can speak in. For an extended period of time. And it, like it's well done. It's a voice changer that we know of. Like we, we understand that it's a voice changer. But it it is. I remember laughing out loud. Like between thinking about TGR's Ragnar. And TGR's Fa. It's comical. And I was... For the for the week or two that we had where I had heard Fa's voice from TGR and when well, we we heard his actual speaking voice with Atlas. Like I think it was a one week. Like I think we heard It was. His, it was. I really like, I laughed at it. I really thought it was funny. And I didn't feel like it was real. This is one of those small things that is a problem, mostly it only actually in the audiobook, because when we're introduced to Fa originally, it's from Ephraim's voice narrator, and he does such a good job that yeah. when TGR picks it up, it feels very different. It feels foreign. We don't have enough time with it in that narrator's accent and idea of what that character is to really understand what he's going for. And so it does like a caricature almost like you're saying of something that existed before then when he's also revealed to kind of be a caricature of the person it feels like that doubles down in that idea if that makes sense so i i didn't quite take it that way yeah 
I, I caricature is way too harsh of a word. No, We've it's said not. That a couple of times. It's over the totally. Course. It's the right word. It's the right word. But a caricature. You you described it as a caricature of the character that we've come to know, and I took it as a a caricature of a Ragnar esque warlord, which I think is more okay. in line in what tgr is doing here and i i'm maybe approaching this with too much context but i would assume that tgr understands who fa is by the time he actually starts recording and and made this choice to make this Mm -hmm. really aggressive characterized voice for fa i i this is something that i would absolutely dig into and talk to tgr about if we had the opportunity to like interview him is his approach to fa as opposed to vagnar and and how that came to be and if fa's voice from the previous books even crossed his mind when he was deciding it because I don't think it did. It it didn't necessarily. For for me, just to bring it to some semblance of a comparison, I imagine the what a Morton Joe from Fury Road, where mm-hmm. like he's got sort of the the dramatic voice, and then when unplugged, he becomes kind of like a regular dude. Yeah, and that feels very reminiscent to some degree of what Fa is, and is kind of like faking to be in many ways. Right. Totally. So. Volga, ultimately, though, throughout all of this conversation that we had about Fa, is ultimately lauded by Fa because she does decide to go with him on his side of things because she sees him as this educator, this person who has opened her eyes, by and large, to the, the world and everything that's happened. And no one else really has. I mean, like, if you think about Ephraim, even Ephraim has, like, kept her in the dark, kept her close, but in the dark. And hasn't like done the same sort of process. So she chooses to hand over the cube of Severa's message to him. Volga asks for Lyria to be respected as a part of this process, but begins to unfurl what we'll find to be happening in the next chapter as we see sort of that process come undone as her truth needs to be realized and rationalized. And we'll get to that here. Uh, and we also find that Seraxes is coming to be killed in the same holy manner as Abraxes and Euro something or other the the holy raptor that was killed previously on Callisto as well so these holy beasts slayed one after another the feast mm-hmm. of the Ascomani. so there's a lot of ways to interpret what happens when Volga hands over the cube to Fa because as it's described, she hands the cube to him and he just says more lies. So this is this is Lyria's perspective, understandably. So it's either Volga has talked about what was on the cube to Fa before handing it over. Fa is very intuitive to how Volga acts and just assumes that she got a cachet of information from an external source that is uh, trying to pit her against him. Or 
like th- there's a bunch of different options, but those are the two main ones that I can think of. But what it tells me, assuming that the Lyria hasn't been outside of Volga's periphery for uh, more than an extended period of time, it tells me that Ba is spying on everyone close to him. And it seems like Fa has listened in on that message from Severo, which isn't dire by any means. There's no there's nothing like super secret that that Severo drops. But for him to so quickly just say, oh, that's lies. Without her saying anything when she hands him the cube is very suspect. But there's there's a lot that there's three full days in the intervening time, and we don't really know what happens between them. Yeah, there of course there is, and there there is like this entire spectrum of relationship that is developed between these characters that we have to we're just cognizant of, but not necessarily aware of. So it's it's tough to say the way that this shakes out entirely, but it does feel evocative of her being on his side. It's tough to not ignore that, mm-hmm. despite all the other sways we might have. True. With that, we get into chapter nice 69 uh, here. Lyria, the hour of hunger. The obsidian previously mentioned in the last chapter, get. Gerla, Gerla, uh, seemingly summons the great Leviathan from the deep. We know this has been chummed previously and extends the offer that only kings are allowed to kill kings before Tha brings the beast and kills it with his trident. The trident, of course, that was claimed previously from the ruler of this planet, one of the golds. I mean, Lyria is still broken by Volga's choice in this moment, just shattered by her decision. Similarly, Sigurd doesn't think favorably of this very moment and feels identically forsaken by not only his own people, but his leader as well. I like, God damn it. (laughs) Like I, I am in agreement with probably everybody assuming that this is a, or thinking that this is a terrible action to take. And it's good that so many seem to be villainizing Fa for this action. But holy shit, would it be cool to see a stained glass window of this scene of Fa killing a Leviathan, the biggest Leviathan ever, with a fucking trident. Such a cool prospect. It would make such a cool, like, still shot image. But fuck. I don't know. Yeah. Undoubtedly, inside of any kind of adaptation, this will just be a massive moment as he rears that down into the beast underneath. Vagnar, Fa, gives an excellent speech that explains how he has done such a good job leading. And then also he turns and offers the passage of stains to Volga to follow in his path. And here we stand now understanding what this means, what the passage of stains is to begin with in the end. 
He counts off all the names in a line before he gets to Lyria and calls her a rat. Volga understands her charge, but wishes to deny her her fate before she accepts it in the end and dons the gauntlet. Motherfucker. This doesn't seem like this is horrible. This is this is hard to reckon with. But at the same time, it doesn't feel horrible enough to really mm-hmm. meet the criteria that we've been presented with to become a sure. stained. Like okay. this feels like theater. This feels like cherry picked for Volga herself to feel like she's meeting the criteria of the trial of the stained, but it doesn't, it doesn't seem to match up with the horrors that are alluded to in previous books. Interesting. I am curious on some of those thoughts, and I think that we will get to interrogate them sooner than later. So, I, I um, agree. I, I'm sure who will. Yeah, I'm, I'm very sure that you believe in that. But the, the choice to even grab the gauntlet to begin with is one in which she is ensuring and protecting her own life. For sure. Totally. Like that, that's. But also. Yeah. Not arguable. Other ramifications. Yeah. 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 Cool. All right. So do you have any thoughts on uh, on Lyria's likely end here or on the passage of stains holistically? I mean, obviously you said that you don't believe that that's the passage, but at the very least thinking about Lyria. Well, uh, so I guess my point of I don't believe this is the passage is I don't believe this is the passage that Ragnar went through. I don't believe this is Mm. the same passage that historically stood. But that doesn't exist anymore. And this is probably as emotionally uh, devastating for for Volga specifically as anything else could be so like it's irrelevant i guess but i still think there's a chance that lyria gets out of this it it seems like something where volga would try to either like flub her way through it or fake kill Lyria but still keep her alive like kind of have it both ways have her have her cake and eat it too I guess Mm -hmm. because we've already mentioned that that phrase in the past in this episode I don't think that'll end well but it feels like something where during this passage she will subtly give direction to Lyria to act dead and not actually kill her all right, cool. With that, we've reached the end of this week. PJ, next week, we're going to end part three, Tempest, reading chapters 70 through 77. PJ. A lot of sevens there. There's a lot of sevens. This is a seven week. This is a 70 times seven times seven kind of week, you know? Mm. Some straight brand new shit. But. Very excited for what this is going to lead to on the whole. And that is where we will leave y'all for this week. Wrapping up next week. Wrapping up part three. Perfect. Perfect. 
So that's where we will leave you for this week. Thank you so much to Tim and Andrew for being the backbone that keeps us running. We've talked about it over the course of this week and and many other times, but I greatly appreciate the work that both of them do to ensure that we are even solvent to begin with. It can't be under it, it can't be underemphasized or overstated how much they mean to us. I know that we make like a bit of the ending of this as much as much and as often as we can, but I think it's important sometimes to be very wholesome and understand that like we literally wouldn't be a hosted show without Tim and the work that he's done to set it up. God, it, and it's insane how much work he's it's given us. It's crazy how much work he actually does for us. If we had uh, to pay for his for work, we couldn't afford it. Like We, we couldn't, couldn't. We couldn't. No. Similarly, Andrew does this out of the kindness of his heart and out of the joy of, of doing this. And we compensate them with like parts of our company and everything else. But I mean, it... Nonetheless, I Andrew could I could sell some organs and afford that. Right. But I don't Same. want to. I like my organs. So we prefer our kidneys inside. And so <laughs> truly, when we say we thank Tim and Andrew, we I I just hope that you understand that they are the show by and large. They are the reasons that we were able to do the show. We're obviously the faces. They're the spines. They're the Lyrias. Yep. Better than Lyria. Uh, I. I also want to take a moment and thank Shine for returning to our uh, Patreon. Thank you so much for uh, rejoining us as a mixologist. I know, of course, they were away for reasons that are obviously disclosed within your own life um, and that we understand, but that that happens from some time. Glad to have you back. Woo! Welcome back. If you would like to review our show, on any platform that allows reviews, which I believe are most platforms, iTunes for sure. I think Spotify does now too, and maybe some others, I don't know. But give us the max amount of stars or ratings as possible and drop us a, a good feel-good note. That'd be pretty cool if we read them. We read all of them. We do. And if they're good, I, I smile for the rest of the day, which is good. I like I like smiling. And <laughs> if they're bad, I talk to my therapist about it. If they're, once if every they're week. bad, Crossland beats me. And well, that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> so leave a five star review, or Crossland will beat me. Wow. Uh, beyond that, find <laughs> us at Words Whiskey Pod on Threads, Blue Sky, Technically X until that platform fully dies. Instagram, Reddit, and otherwise. Words and Whiskey Show, gmail.com if you want to send us an email and any thoughts and anything that's going on. Join us at patreon.com forward slash words and whiskey if you want to understand the back end and talk to us a little bit about the different series that we're reading and what we're thinking about week to week. We're so excited to have you all there. Everything is going swell. Beyond that, we'll see you next week for the end of part three, Tempest. If you feel like giving a bad review, like a less than five star review, you can send that instead of sending that on like the the platform, which hurts us. Send it to wordswhiskeyshow at gmail.com. Send us the, the negative review and then tell Crossland how to beat me. I dislike that as a premise, <laughs> but I understand. It's it's better in some ways, but it's worse in a lot of others. We'll see you next week. Bye.